podcast one production. Almost two years ago, I sat down for an interview with my friend Ken Goldberg. Now, Ken is one of the leading experts in robotics. So I was interested in his thoughts on autonomous cars because I'd heard from everyone in the automotive industry, from the CEO of Mercedes-Benz, among others, that autonomous vehicles, they were right around the corner. We'd be using them to drive us pretty much everywhere by 2021. And Tesla, Tesla promised that every model they manufactured from 2018 onward would be ready for full autonomy. Ken poured cold water on those promises. Here's our conversation. We have really useful, dedicated robots, but the more we try to make them general purpose, the more we encounter all of the weirdness. Now, let me, let me frame this for you. I recently, my, my uncle has bought himself a new Tesla. Ah, all right, okay. and I was, I was invited to take it out for a drive okay. with my cousin who drives it a lot. My uncle's a little older, only drives it a little bit. My, my cousin drives a lot. My cousin's an engineer. And so the two of us played with, because he spent a lot of time in the self-driving mode of the Tesla. Okay. And we were on surface streets doing this. And it was really interesting sort of watching the car have a think about what it wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And realizing it was making the wrong decision and then me pulling back on the wheel and it going, oh, okay, I'm sorry, I've Mm. got this wrong, and going back and forth. And you realized that a Tesla, although they talk about it being a self-driving car, is really good at driving on a highway Mm -hmm. because it's like the robot cleaning your floors. There's not a lot to think about, right? You stay away from the other cars, you stay in your lane, you're good. Mm-hmm. When you're on surface streets and so do I take that turn, do I go up that driveway, all of a sudden you could tell that as smart as the car was, it was still like, I don't know, I'm just gonna roll the dice and see what happens. Interesting, absolutely. So I am pretty critical of the, of the expectations around self-driving cars. So you think they're not gonna come in the next five years? Not 10 years, I have a bet, I'm willing to take a bet that in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Right, which is where you're from. Right, and the fully autonomous vehicle, which is what Uber is claiming, right, that they're gonna have these, you know, no, no drivers at all, uh, that they're, I will say that in 10 years that will not be common in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and okay. I will bet on that. All right, so is that gonna be as true for, I mean, I can see that being true for passenger vehicles, but will we have delivery vehicles, so vehicles that are sized really differently, that don't need a human being, but that are autonomous enough to get a package across town or get your groceries home from the store? Well, will we have those in 10 years? Well, for the same reason, I, I'm worried because it's, as you said, the freeway is one thing, yeah. and the other area where I think we can make a huge amount of progress is in, 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 in heavy traffic. Bumper to bumper traffic, that's, that's where you want the autonomy. I want to take a nap when I'm stuck on the Bay Bridge. That's, I, that's coming very soon. But no, in being able to deliver across town, that's non-trivial. If the town has these small, small roads and, and there's, God forbid, there's kids on bikes and construction mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, any kind of weather. Now, it wasn't long after we had that conversation that a lot of the automakers began to walk back their very aggressive plans for self-driving cars. And then, in March 2018, a self-driving Uber killed a pedestrian in Tempe, Arizona. And for the first time, the broader public began to think about self-driving cars as something potentially quite dangerous. 
Autonomous vehicles are the biggest transformation in transportation since the invention of the automobile. But are they really real? And if so, when will they be real? Is the future already here or is it off in the never-never? To answer these questions, we found some of the leaders in this field, and you'll be hearing from them across this episode. But first up, special correspondent Drew Smith will take us on a tour of the five levels of autonomous vehicles. Now, after that, I'll go for a ride in a car equipped with the kinds of futuristic sensors they'll need to get to the higher levels of autonomy. And then, co-host Sally Deminks talks to Intel's Jack Wiest and learns how the future of autonomy could rely on backseat driving. We've turned the cruise control off on this episode of The Next Billion Cars. Before we dive into all the specifics of autonomous vehicles, it might be best to begin with what we mean, precisely, when we use the term. Because an autonomous vehicle doesn't mean just one thing. It can mean a range of things. And that can very quickly get confusing if you're talking about one version of autonomy while someone else is talking about another. To bring some clarity to this, back in 2013, the United States National Highway Traffic Safety Administration defined five levels of autonomy that we might expect to find in autonomous vehicles. This was all so sensible that the industry has broadly adopted it. So when you hear people talking about level 3 autonomy or level 0 autonomy, these are the levels that they're referring to. Level 0. So this is the basement. Nothing to see here really except for driving as we've always known it a human controlling every aspect of the car's operation. What's interesting is that these days, it's hard to buy a car that doesn't have at least a few autonomous features. Level zero cars are generally either bottom of the range or they're older models. Going up. Level one. This is very basic autonomy where a function like steering or accelerating can be handled by the car. Cruise control, which has been around for almost as long as we've had automobiles, would count as level one autonomy. So would some sort of stay in your lane feature. Level one is not very sophisticated and the vast majority of cars sold today would have at least one level one feature. So we're already on the road to rising autonomy. Going up. Level 2. Here we start to get something that's more recognisable as autonomy. For Level 2, we need both steering and acceleration to be controlled on the basis of information coming in from the environment. So this isn't just set and forget like old-fashioned cruise control. This is the kind of autonomy that a Tesla offers in autopilot mode. The car is using its sensors and Mark will have more about those sensors later in the episode, to keep it on the road, in the lane, and safely keeping pace with traffic. That requires a complex coordination of sensor data, steering, and acceleration controls, and that, in turn, requires a sophisticated computer to integrate all of that information and make decisions. Still, the human isn't completely out of the loop, Level 2 autonomy mandates that a human is always ready to take the wheel at a moment's notice. 
And these days, Tesla enforces that by detecting whether your hands are on the steering wheel and warning the driver when they're not, then disengaging autopilot after repeated warnings. That way, you can't just fall asleep as your Tesla drives you to oblivion. Thank heavens. Going up. Welcome to level three. Level three autonomy looks a lot like level two autonomy with one big exception. While you still need to have a driver prepared to take control of the vehicle, that driver doesn't need to be focused on the vehicle while it's driving autonomously. This is the sort of autonomy that lets someone read a newspaper or watch Netflix while the vehicle autonomously drives them to their destination. But we need to be clear. The person being driven by the vehicle is a licensed driver who can take control of the vehicle when conditions become too difficult for the vehicle to manage. This is the sort of good enough autonomy that most of the manufacturers are working towards in the near term. It doesn't end the role of the driver. In some sense, they're more important than ever before. But it does mean that driving is no longer a wholly involving task. Still, that human driver, they're there to take control of the vehicle in an emergency. Yes, but they're also there to take the blame in the case of some sort of accident. On the last series of The Next Billion Seconds, Dana Boyd talked about humans put into these positions serving as moral crumple zones. In some ways, this, of course, goes way back. This is at the core of how we architected bureaucracy, right? Bureaucracy was designed to put people and to, to, to blame people rather than to actually blame systems. And, you know, as bureaucracy hit technology, sort of new things formed. So I'm particularly fascinated by the work of my colleague Madeline Ellish, and she was trying to understand um, a set of regulatory decisions in the United States around the Federal Aviation Administration, which, of course, decides um, how we deal with, you know, all things planes. Um, and she was interested in a lot of their decisions around um, uh, basically autopilot, right? The early the, the cruise control for the planes. And, you know, there were all these debates about what it meant to p- turn planes over to autopilot. And should that mean we remove pilots from the cockpit? And the decision in the United States was that uh, it would be imperative. We needed to have a pilot in the um, in that seat um, in order to take over from a plane when something would go wrong. And the idea was that this pilot should be well equipped to you know take over because humans were supposed to be smarter than than machines. Um, but of course, what it meant in practice was that that pilot uh, hasn't really flown a plane for a very long time. They've babysat auto pilot for years on end. And when things go terribly awry with that, uh, you know, that system, the, you know, pilot is supposed to step in totally out of context, respond immediately to a crisis, usually in record speed, and correct that wrong. Now, here's the dark secret of this. We know that autopilot means that planes are much safer than ever before. But when autopilot fails, those planes usually crash. And when those planes crash, the pilot usually dies. And as a result, we tend to blame the pilot for the eventual crash, not the various things that led up to why the pilot was not well equipped to be able to make the decisions in that crisis moment. 
And that's where we have this question, you know, akin to your point about, um, you know, autopilot in the car of like, to what degree is that um, person actually serving a role of as a liability sponge? Are they owning the liability? And Madeline refers to this whole process as a moral crumple zone, right? A crumple zone being the part of your car that sort of absorbs all the pain upon impact. So what it means to put the human to absorb that. So yes, we might be in those vehicles, but we might be there simply to take the blame and absolve a car maker of liability in the case of a crash. Hmm. Going up. Ah, here we are at level four. This is pretty much what we mean when we toss around the words autonomous vehicle. This is a vehicle that can drive itself around pretty much anywhere without any human intervention. There's no need to have a licensed driver on board because the autonomous vehicle has enough capacity to handle normal conditions. But it's important to note that level four implies ordinary driving conditions. So if there's fog or heavy rain or snow or ice or smoke or really almost anything outside the ordinary, level four autonomy is not going to be good enough. In that situation, if there's no licensed driver in the vehicle, the car will likely just find a place to pull over and wait out the conditions until they improve. Which could be a big problem in a flood, or a fire, or a hurricane, or some other situation of increasing danger. This is one of the big reasons we've got to think through the use cases for our autonomous vehicles very carefully. It'll be great to have vehicles smart enough to drive people around, so long as those vehicles don't inadvertently become death traps. Going up! And finally, level five, or as Mark likes to call it, Nerdvana. At this point, the autonomous vehicle is as capable as a human driver and can handle any road condition a human driver might be expected to encounter, including very poor road conditions, poor weather, exceptionally poor traffic, and so forth. Will we get here? Level 5 autonomy implies a computer that's as smart and as capable as a human driver. That's a big ask. In fact, it's a huge ask, and we don't really know how huge an ask it is because we haven't tried to make a Level 5 autonomous vehicle. Level 4 is the goal, something that's good enough in ordinary conditions to do the job. But that doesn't mean we'll never have Level 5 autonomy. It's just that it's further away than we can predict right now. So when you hear Level 5 autonomy from someone in the automotive industry, you're hearing them make a promise that, at least right now, no one knows how to keep. On the other hand, we will have Level 4 autonomy at some point. That much seems doable. What no one knows yet is just where that point lies in our automotive future. But it will happen sometime during the next billion cars. Thanks, Drew. Now, as Drew mentioned, to get to level two autonomy and beyond, our cars need to be kitted out with a range of different sensors that make them broadly aware of everything that's around them. Without those sensors, they're literally driving blind. The most important of these new sensors is something called LIDAR. That's spelled L-I-D-A-R. 
LIDAR is a mashup between the words light and radar, and that kind of gives you the full flavor of how it works. Just as radar bounces radio waves off of objects to calculate their distance, LIDAR uses light waves to calculate the distance to objects. Now, this is often done using a technique known as time of flight, which means it measures the time it takes for a photon of light to travel from the LIDAR, bounce off the object, and reflect back into the LIDAR, which means it's all operating at the speed of light. Nothing can work faster. Now, the big thing about LIDAR is that it tends to be complex, delicate, and expensive, none of which is a good fit for the mass manufacturing of the next billion cars. So if we ever expect to get to autonomy that's available as a basic package in an automobile, we're going to need simple, cheap, and durable LIDAR systems. And that's made me very interested in an Australian startup named Baraha, who have been working hard on such a system. And I had the chance to catch up with Nick Langdale-Smith from Baraha at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. Here's what I learned about LIDAR and about Baraha. What we're essentially seeing is the view from the bird's eye above our vehicle right now. Um, you've got vehicles going along yep. the roadway in front of us. Yep. Uh, we're stationary at the moment. And this is what is called a point cloud. Yes. Very, very commonplace in LiDAR. Um, so each of those points have a position in three dimensions that's being detected by the, the LiDAR. That is correct. Okay. So we have a position in 3D uh, and a distance as well. So uh, we know exactly how far away all of these uh, moving objects are and other road users are. And as we drive around, the, the vehicle is going to be able to well, we're not doing any self-driving here. We've got a manual driver yes. behind there. But um, we're going to be able to produce the data that uh, a self-driving vehicle system is going to need to, to see its way around. And all self-driving systems have to have LiDAR in them because they need to be able to detect anything that's happening around them so that they can potentially avoid it. Absolutely correct? right. Okay. Yeah. LiDAR is a critical sensor for self-driving cars. Um, I think there's only one outspoken CEO in this industry that said that it's not necessary, but uh, he's also said he could be wrong. Uh, and it seems like everybody else thinks he probably is, given the uptake of LiDAR and the amount of interest in the technology. So what you're seeing here on the screen is, is the um, melding of all four of what we call sensor heads on the roof into this cohesive single point cloud here. Um, and we can you know, fly around inside of this and zoom around uh, to our heart's content. And as, as we drive around, you'll be able to see cars, you'll be able to see pedestrians, you'll be able to see the road surface itself. and um, and the structure of the uh, environment around it. Now, this is similar. Some some listeners might have seen when they do, for for instance, re representations of archaeological ruins, and they bring in a camera that then does a scan of a space, mm -hmm. like an old cathedral mm -hmm. or an old Roman ruin. And so LiDAR, that that's also LiDAR technology, right? This is just a much more sort of updated version of it? This is, it, well, it's, it's more industrialized. Th those systems are generally super expensive. Because they're um, super high resolution. Super right? high resolution. Yeah. And those systems generally operate using a similar mechanical principle, but they turn very, very slowly. So they might take 10 minutes to do a scan. Yeah. We're scanning here, well, we can scan very, very quickly. We can actually dynamically adjust the scan speed. Yeah. Um, the other thing that we can dynamically adjust here that uh, sets Baraha's spectrum scan LiDAR apart from other LiDARs is that because all we need to do to change the scan pattern is change the light wavelengths that are coming out of our laser. We can do that in nanoseconds. So we can very, very, very quickly change um, not just 
the scan speed, but the pattern that is coming out of it. And what that means is that without any additional wear and tear on any moving parts, because we're not aiming anything, all we're doing is saying, laser, give me these different individual wavelengths. And we might want those wavelengths to be compressed or bunched up into a certain region of interest inside of uh, the field of view. So what we're describing here is a software-defined LiDAR. We don't talk about how many lines you have in a particular number. You can have up to 10,000 different lines in this technology if you wanted to. So if you need to take that. a very close look at something very mm -hmm. quickly yep. because something interesting that the car cares about is happening you to it, it, then the system can adapt to that. That's correct. And we do that with, um, with pretty much an instantaneous change in the scan pattern. We think this is very powerful because the LiDAR of the future is going to be a key sensor for the self-driving car and much like we as human beings move our eyes around when something interests us to get more information we, we have a very high resolution area in the central field of view but at very low resolution in our peripheral vision we couple very very tightly our perception which is in our brains in the visual cortex with our sensor our visual sensors our eyes and, and we think that evolution got it right and we also think that um, the self-driving car is going to have to have those same sorts of capabilities that um, we as humans have evolved to become very, very good drivers. Now, I mean, there's there's essentially no standardization in LiDAR, right? There is a whole bunch of different techniques, most of them mechanical, mm -hmm. made by a whole bunch of different folks at different prices. But there's been no standardization. There's been no autom automotive manufacturers are all still trying things out right now. Mm -hmm. So are we in a phase where we're going to see a lot of different kinds of innovation in LiDAR, with Baraja being one of them? Or are we going to see sort of a consolidation into a right way of doing this? I think there are a lot of different techniques uh, that are being experimented with at the moment. I think there's um, different different stages of development of LiDAR. There's, there's some companies that have been around for a long time. There's been a spate of startups over the last couple of uh, years that have got a, a slightly different way of doing things or a cheaper way of doing the same thing. Mm. Uh, I think what we're showing here is a very, very high performance system. We're using laser wavelengths that are non-traditional. Yeah. Uh, that allows us to see very, very far. Our system here is seeing objects out past 200 meters, yeah. even very dark objects out past 200 meters. And um, what that's allowing is that the vehicle of the future is going to be able to make decisions early. It's going to be able to slow down if it sees something very, very far away. Um, current techniques, current technologies can't do that. So you're seeing different, I guess, uh, phases of evolution of the LiDAR as, as a technology. I think some of the things that are going to come up um, into crisp focus over the next year is going to be things like industrialization. Mm -hmm. um, have, have you built this system in a way that's going to be reliable, is going to meet automotive quality and, stand, and the, these sorts of standards? Um, or is this something that is really only going to go and work in a um, research environment? Right. What we don't know about LiDAR is if there's a solution that will ever be cheap enough for mass production. But then again, the deceleration sensors that are used in automobiles to deploy the airbags, those cost $15 a piece back in 1990. Now they're a part of every smartphone. They're the thing that tells you whether the smartphone is in portrait mode or landscape mode. They cost a few tenths of a cent. When you manufacture a billion of anything the price drops. And so maybe over the next billion cars, LiDAR gets cheap. It'll need to if we want our cars to be driving themselves. But it will take more than great sensors. And when we come back from the break, we'll learn about that other essential ingredient from co-host Sally Domingues.
Welcome back to The Next Billion Cars, where we're exploring the world of autonomous vehicles, self-driving cars. A car that can drive itself has to be very smart, which means it's got to have a lot of software on board. And that software, well, it's got to work perfectly all the time or someone's going to get hurt. Co-host Sally Deminks has been looking into that. LiDAR is necessary for an autonomous vehicle, but all that data has to be going into some very sophisticated software, and that's also a huge challenge confronting the automotive industry. Because that software is going to be complex, and people's lives are going to depend on it working perfectly, all the time. Because if the software in an autonomous vehicle fails, people could die. This may be one reason why a recent survey showed as much as 80% of the public don't trust autonomous vehicles. As much as we want them, we don't want to trust them with our lives. But there are some very clever folks working hard to make sure our autonomous vehicles stay on track. At CES, Mark and I sat down with Intel Senior Principal Engineer Jack Wiest, looking to understand how these autonomous vehicles can be trusted to be safe drivers. So, so it's interesting, Toyota has actually named their um, driver AI interface Guardian and um, are talking about how that is in the, in, the, in the immediate future. We'll have this thing where we have AI assisting the driver to make the right decisions. Right. We definitely be- agree with Toyota's philosophy that having sort of a Guardian or a safety envelope uh, to protect uh, against human driver mistakes or fatigue or distractions or whatever is a way to make driver assistance systems much safer than they are today. And there's an opportunity to save a lot of lives, a lot of money, a lot of stress, a lot of hassle um, by having better protection um, for ourselves as human drivers as we get distracted and look at our phone when we're not supposed to or follow a squirrel when we're not supposed to <laughs> or drive too tired or too late when we're not supposed to. Um, you know, the vehicle using those same technologies that will enable fully autonomous driving we can reuse those in vehicles today, which gets consumers more comfortable with the technology because then they're using it on a daily basis. And so then maybe they won't be so fearful of a truly driverless future when it comes sometimes uh, down the road. You know, I have two rook questions which could be obvious, but because I'm not techie, I'm going to ask them. The first one is, is it the case then that as the car drives over a state border, say, that it will recalibrate with those uh, laws and road rules and things as it hits that boundary? That's an excellent question. There's something in the industry that we call operational design domain. And really what it means, it's sort of tech speak for, these are the conditions or parameters under which or within which an automated vehicle should operate. And so um, at the end of the day, safety is a balance between safety and utility. The safest automated vehicle in the world is the one that never leaves your garage. So the moment it goes outside your garage, you're already taking some, just like we humans do, right? Every day we go out there, we're taking elements of risk to get to where we go. And so we can dial, with this formal model that we've proposed, you can dial these things up and down. You could have perfect safety, but that might mean you have a following distance that's two miles long. Well, do we want that? No, that's not what we want because that's bad utility of our roads. So how do you dial that up and down? And that's ultimately a question for society. That's not for any one company to decide. And so the benefit of a a formal model for safety is you can adjust those parameters so that state by state or country by country or even city by city, um, you could communicate a different operational design domain, which is, hey, we have different expectations on how people drive in our community. Well, we drive Um, on the left. Yeah, we we drive on the left. That's right, we do. 
Okay, so my other rook question is an essentially human one, and it's about culture. So am I, if I'm in a different culture, I may be more likely to hit that squirrel. My passengers in the car coming from a particular area are going to care more or less about hitting the squirrel. And so how do you take that sort of cultural thing into account? Yeah, and I think that's where that in-vehicle experience and the personalization and customization of not just your media or things like that that we think about, but also how the car drives. Uh, we all have friends that we we reluctantly get into the passenger seat because oh, yes. we just can't stand the way they drive. We have others that we like how they drive because they drive like we do, right? And so I think there's no reason why the machine can't adapt to those personal preferences in exactly the ways that you're describing. So Operation Design Domain is the crucial design component of autonomous vehicles that brings together the actions of the car with the real environment and the laws and social norms we expect these vehicles to comply with. A recent study of American drivers found that most people believe self-driving cars should be programmed to save as many people as possible. But those same people want a car that prioritises themselves and their passengers in an incident. Those conflicting demands highlight just how complex this design task is. This fundamental pivot from the car being something controlled by the individual whims of its driver to a vehicle now responsible for replicating and improving on human decision-making is profound. It's a new frontier, Drew. What are you thinking? Well, the real challenge at my end is that if we can't even agree on the terms, how can we agree what the actual frontier is? Uh, as we talked about uh, kind of in the in the segment, looking at the different levels of autonomy, there is an even agreement within the manufacturers at the moment as to when they're going to be able to achieve a given level. And before we even get to that point, there isn't even agreement on how to describe the systems to customers so that they can become aware of what it is they're actually using and the limitations of the systems that they've got in their cars. One of the things that we're asking car makers to do right now is we're actually asking them to become world leaders in artificial intelligence. And that is a huge ask. These are car makers. They make cars. They don't make advanced artificial intelligence systems. And all of a sudden, they're expecting to go literally from zero to 60 in just a few years and become the most sophisticated providers of AI. And this is one reason why we can't even agree on terms, because in some sense, I feel like they're all at sea here. I'm fascinated also in that when those automakers are seeking out partners in this sort of area of software and in this area of AI, they seem to be going to more sort of retail obvious partners. They're not going to the pointy end researchers at the universities. To me, they're not going, they're not reaching out for the super pointy end solutions and that baffles me. Some of that is just that Google has hoovered up almost every advanced AI researcher for Waymo. So if you can think of Waymo as Google's research project on autonomous vehicles, right? For years, people I know working in the field said every one of their postgraduates was immediately hired into Google, either to work on Waymo or something else. And so in some sense, it's a talent gap, but in some sense, it's also that we've needed this talent so quickly, we haven't had time to grow the years of talent we need. Not like automotive design, where we have 100 years of teaching people how to design cars, how to design internal combustion engines, all of these things. I guess it's interesting to note that one one of the uh, one of the manufacturers working in my town here is currently hiring a head of artificial intelligence. 
um, you kind of have to ask yourself, what's the inducement to move to not just uh, a geographic location like Sweden, but also to an environment like a car company, where in reality, a lot of the infrastructure that you might be expecting when you went to a place like Google is just not there. You know, we we struggle to create kind of software development environments for decent user experience creation. So, you know, what's it going to be like when it comes to actually developing world-leading artificial intelligence? And there's a whole other level, too. When I had my conversation with Nick over at Baraha, and he took me out in his car that was had these beautiful sensors in it so they could image everything around it. And you're taking a look at these sensors, and these sensors are incredibly expensive now, and we're going to have to manufacture a billion of them for those next billion cars. Can we put autonomy in a car without raising the price of a car so dramatically? That's really interesting considering that cars will be a service and there's no ownership per se. So if you were to pass on some massive cost, like who are we passing it to now? To the passenger, to the person who's receiving the service. And all of a sudden, does that mean that you've priced these things out of the range of people? Or is there a path? I mean, cars used to be very expensive and now we manufacture billions of them and they're not. There may be a hint, uh, Mark, there in the launch of Toyota's kind of uh, urban mobility service in Japan a couple of weeks ago and it ties in nicely with some of the uh, investigative work that you did at CES around Toyota's launch of Chauffeur and Guardian. And maybe one of the ways in which uh, these brands are going to amortize the cost of the sensors, for example, is to push them into vehicles that aren't going to be owned by individuals, but where the cost of the sensors is going to be spread out over kind of much higher utilization rates that come with vehicles that are in a shared network, much like Sal's talking about. What fascinates me is that big picture, all of the automakers that we heard at CES and Detroit were talking about essentially the democratization of cars, the fact that so many more people that have had not had access to a car will have access. But right now, you know, we're talking 15 years. Is it possible that those costs can be amortized across such service that more people can afford a car? Or is it in fact going to be a case that these driverless cars become a more exclusive service vehicle for a period of time, which is just going to be weird. And and there's, I guess, another question, which is, can the automakers themselves afford that level of sustained investment? Google thinks nothing of throwing billions of dollars a year on an advanced AI program for a self-driving car. But could Toyota or Ford or Fiat actually sustain that level of investment without getting a return on it? I mean, these are economic questions. And we, we forget that these automakers, while they're transforming, while they're pouring all this money in, have to find the money for that. So I think one of the things that's interesting to look at here is a white paper that was published by Sergio Marchioni a few years ago. Uh, he used to be the CEO and chairman of, of Fiat Chrysler Auto. Uh, and the paper was titled Confessions of a Capital Junkie, if memory serves correct. And it's a reflection on how the automotive industry kind of allocates capital in ways that are becoming increasingly insignificant as far as kind of the impact on the customer is concerned. And what he makes an argument for, and it's quite a compelling argument in that white paper, is that the industry should learn where to kind of combine investment across manufacturers um, so that they can then invest in the things that are going to make them uh, compelling and differentiated in the minds of the consumer so they continue to be relevant over the longer term. So does that mean that every manufacturer needs to be developing its own LIDAR? 
Probably not, because at the end of the day, it's not going to make a significant difference to the consumer. But does that mean that they should be investing in developing a differentiated service offer in the market? More than likely, yes. So I wonder where we are with autonomous vehicles now is we see that the folks who are rolling these services out, particularly Waymo, are restricting the speeds on these services. They're basically keeping them below 40 kilometers an hour in order to provide a level of safety. And, you know, if you're talking about city driving, which is complicated and rich, and where you're really not going to go that fast, that's going to be fine. But if you're talking about suburban and more rural driving, that's not going to be sufficient. So where do we feel? I mean, is this the kind of problem where it's going to be good for a delivery truck or it's going to be good for shuttling people around an urban core? But is it actually going to solve the entire transportation problem? Well, the low-hanging fruit is that direct route um, crowded city stuff, right? You know, um, last episode, Drew mentioned that his ideal would be cars out of cities, and so, you know, if we were to start with cars out of cities, then uh, that that solves so many social problems at so many levels that we could have that scenario of let's all drive on the open road and have some fun. But as soon as you hit a city, it's completely automated. I can I kind of see that vision being quite real. You've hit a really important point there, Sal, and that is about the constraints. I mean, Mark, you've, you've kind of hit on it too. Like what constraints do we actually put around the technology to give it the best chance of providing a useful and reliable service? And I was reading recently about how some of the organizations that are more rapidly approaching the ability to deploy level four are actually looking at implementing kind of infrastructure within these urban environments in order to help the vehicles read that environment more effectively. And I think that poses a really fascinating question because then all of a sudden you've got private enterprise wanting to place infrastructure within urban environments, you know, on maybe light poles that are owned by a city authority. Uh, so you start opening up a whole new range of, 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 I guess, political challenges that need to be overcome in order to be able to make these systems work. Uh, my mate John Alsop really has quite a rap about this, where he believes that this is going to happen because an urban authority such as Singapore will simply mandate that the urban landscape is redesigned to be able to support the kinds of services that autonomous vehicles are going to need. So it's going to be that interesting mix in Singapore where you're just going to do it because the state tells you to do it versus can a developer do it, whether it's in a retirement community or in a suburban neighborhood? Does this become the kind of service that people who are moving to a community actually want. All right. There's so much here. I mean, it feels like we've only just scratched the surface of all of this. But of course, we have to go on to the next big transformation in the next billion seconds. So on that next episode of The Next Billion Cars, we're going to cover that next big transformation in transportation electrification. Every manufacturer has a plan for going electric, but are they biting off more than they can chew? And really, is electric the only way to go? And I'll share the story of my epic drive across China in a hydrogen-powered vehicle. Yep, we're all electric. Well, maybe mostly electric. In the next episode of The Next Billion Cars. The Next Billion Cars was written and presented by Mark Pesci, Sally Deminks, and Drew Smith, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia producer Alex Mitchell and sound production Darcy Thompson. 
For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search the next billion seconds on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesci, Andrew Smith, and Sally Dominguez, thanking you for listening. 